myself. Good evening. Good evening. I feel like somebody needs to pinch me. This is quite an honor. Uh, it is a joy to be with you. Uh, you've turned to Genesis 23, is that correct? You're there. Um, it is a humbling privilege and honor to stand before you and to bring God's word uh, to you. I, I do love this church. This is my third visit here, and uh, it is a joy to be with you, to get to know a few of you, uh, and I, I greatly respect and appreciate your pastor, Ed, and his preaching, uh, and to, to be asked to come here and contribute. I've listened to the messages uh, online from these Wednesday nights, and I've heard the, the preaching that you have received, and to be asked to be uh, included in that, to be a part of that, is a, a sincere, sincere honor. Thank you. I'm humbled by the invitation, and I, I do hope that you are built up and strengthened in the Word tonight. Let's, let's uh, pause and ask for the Lord's help before we go any farther. Heavenly Father, thank you. Oh, we thank you for just the joy that we've already known this night, to be able to fellowship with each other, to partake of food, to partake of the joy of singing and praying. And we ask now for your help uh, in illumining your words to us. We pray that you would give life to your people, give them strength, give them encouragement, give them good hope and comfort through Jesus. Uh, may you be honored in the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. Uh, may we together be pure and acceptable in your sight. We ask this through Jesus and for his glory. Amen. Uh, some of you know, uh, as I had shared a few months back at one of the church nights, uh, that I was on a sabbatical. Uh, thank you for those of you that were praying for me during that sabbatical. Uh, I returned back to my pastoral duties in uh, early June, and in the first week back, it was sort of a microcosm of the ministry as a whole, the ups and downs of, of rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. On uh, Friday, this is week one back from sabbatical, Friday afternoon I attended the funeral of a 56-year-old uh, former member of our church. We'd sent him with a number of about 20 or 30 of our members three years ago to plant a new church in our community. And this brother, uh, long-term kidney illness, unbelieving family, uh, very sad uh, funeral, joyful for his uh, entry into glory, but pain, sorrow, tears. 24 hours later, uh, I was at a wedding of a young couple beginning their life together as husband and wife. I wonder which event you would rather have attended. I just, I just mean in a vacuum. I don't mean, well, if, if you knew this person who was dying, obviously, but I'm just saying generally when you think wedding and funeral, which of the two are you inclined to say, I'd like to be there? God's word has a surprising answer on that question in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2, when a man who identifies himself somewhat cryptically as the preacher says, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. I wonder if you share his perspective there. 
Celebrations are good. Do not misunderstand me. It is a good thing. The Bible encourages us to rejoice in and celebrate uh, every good gift that he has given to us. But there is a lesson, the preacher writes, a valuable lesson to be learned in the house of mourning. And all of us would uh, do well to take heed to what we can learn in the house of mourning. And as you continue, I'm going to say we continue in our study because I have been following along on the podcast. Thank you, whoever it is who's uploading those messages week after week. Uh, In our study of Abraham's life, we enter tonight into the house of mourning. And this specific house of mourning has, I believe, a specific lesson to teach us one that we would do well to lay up in our hearts. And the lesson that we learn in this house of mourning is this. Even death cannot stop God from keeping his promises to his people. Even death cannot stop God from keeping his promises to his people. It it may be hard for you to spot that main idea as we read through this chapter of God's word, but I hope by the end of our time tonight, you will recognize that and you will rejoice in its encouragement and its comfort. So uh, please do listen attentively as I uh, read Genesis chapter 23 in its entirety. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me, And entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron. And Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites, 
before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God God indeed. Did you see it? Even, Even death, you're laughing, even death cannot stop God from keeping his promises to his people. Okay, maybe we didn't see that quite yet, but let's, let's work at it. And to work at it, let's, let's consider Abraham's grief. We see that in verses 1 and 2. And then Abraham's grave, verses 3 through 20. First, Abraham's grief. And we'll note this really just a brief point because it is a brief part of the passage, but it is a weighty part. Sarah died. After 127 years, we were told, she died. She breathed her last. She was dead. Did you notice as I read through the prevalence of that phrase, you're dead, my dead? I think it was eight times if I, if I counted it correctly. This couple had lived together as pilgrims for 62 years. It had been 62 years since God appeared to Abram and called him to go to a land that he would show him. 62 years. Uh, We don't know the exact date or age that they were when they were married, but if it was, say, in their 20s or maybe early 30s, then they celebrated perhaps 100 anniversaries together as husband and wife. I mean, we go crazy. If there's anybody in the room who's hit 60, that's amazing. And we praise God for it. Up to maybe 100 anniversaries. Uh, This coming Saturday will be the 20th anniversary of the day that I proposed to my darling wife, Michelle. And, and we have tasted in those 20 years, we've tasted what the traditional wedding vows declare. We've, we've known some better or worse. We've known some richer or poorer. We've known some sickness and health. And, and we've known, and I trust that all of you that are married in this room know this, and, and I trust that whether you're married or not, if you've had any meaningful relationship, you know this to be true, that the more strain and hardship that a relationship has endured and you've persevered through it, the sweeter and the deeper that affection is for each other. And I can think, again, you've studied the book, of, you've studied these chapters from Genesis 12 on here now to 23. I could think of three or four events that you've studied over these weeks together that would have put a real strain on the marriage of Abraham and Sarah. I mean, we can I scarcely imagine the impact of Sarah's death upon Abraham. I miss her. I, I miss my bride tonight, singing with you, knowing the joy. I'm just, we're singing songs. I'm thinking, I wish she was here. She's not dead. She's just a couple hours down the I-95. Think of the hole that this would have left for Abraham. After all those 
years wandering in the desert together, Abraham now would continue his pilgrimage alone. And so we see he grieved. He grieved over her loss. Verse 2 tells us Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. These are the very first death-awakened tears recorded in the Scriptures. There's one instance of weeping earlier in Genesis 21 when Hagar weeps because she thinks Ishmael is about to die, but as you know, he did not die there. These are the first tears awakened by the reality of death recorded in God's Word. And they remind us that death is an awful thing. Death is an unnatural thing. God created humans in the beginning to live forever. We know that death is the consequence of our rebellion against God. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. And so it is right, just make a, a little point of application in here before we get to what I think is the main part of this passage, it is right for followers of Jesus even to mourn over death. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul celebrates the sting of death having been removed. But that sting of death is not removed. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's not removed until the trumpet sounds and the dead are raised and the mortal puts on immortality. We still feel that sting of death. And so it is appropriate that we grieve in the face of death. Abraham was a man of faith, we know that, and here he is mourning and weeping over his beloved wife. Uh, If you are here this evening experiencing grief over the pain of a spouse or some other dear loved one, uh, it is likely that that grief will be your companion for the remainder of your life. Please don't be embarrassed by that or ashamed of that. If you need help and care and comfort of a pastor or other members, if you are suffering from the grief related to a loved one dying, don't feel like you're a bad Christian. Even even our Lord Jesus wept at the grave of his friend Lazarus. Do not think that grieving, that weeping, is a fruit of lacking faith. The hope of Christ does transform our grief, but it does not end our grief in this life. Abraham tasted that grief. But Abraham knew also that grief would not always be his companion. And his burial of Sarah in the land of Canaan is a supreme act of faith in that fact. Point number two Abraham's grave. Now, if if you're looking at the ESV Bible, I've looked at the Pew Bibles to confirm that this is the case. When you look at this chapter, the heading there, and that's just, you know, these headings are just put in by editors of this particular Bible. They're not inspired by God. But it says there, Sarah's death and burial. I don't know if it says that there, you know, depending on the Bible that you're looking at. But we were reading the, the chapter as a family last night after dinner, and everyone, I mean, I've been reading the chapter a lot, but this was their first exposure to it, and everyone just noticed, like, that's not titled well. That does not summarize what we just read all that well. 
There is mention of Sarah dying, of course, in verse 2. There is mention of her being buried in verse 19. But in between, the, the vast majority of this chapter are, are, are details about, Mo, uh, about Abraham uh, negotiating a deal and acquiring this piece of land where he might bury his dead, where he might bury Sarah. And we could spend time going through all of the details. I'll, I'll just trace it out for you briefly, right? Abraham recognizes he, he, he gets up from his morning and he recognizes he's a stranger and a foreigner in the land. And he, so, so he asks the natives for a property to bury his wife. And the Hittites recognize in some way, remember, God promised that Abraham that his name would be great. And these people have recognized in some way that God is with him. They call him a prince of, of God. And, and they say, take, take, take one of our tombs and, and, and bury her. And Abraham doesn't want to have a, a gift from them. He wants to buy the land. And he identifies this particular cave in Machpelah belonging to Ephron, the Hittite. And he says he'll buy the the field. He'll buy the cave. And, and Ephron says, I'll, I'll give you the cave. I'll give you the field with the cave. And, and Abraham insists, no, 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 name your price. I'll, I will buy it. And finally, Ephron, and it's a little bit, you don't wonder what's going on and the dynamics here. It's like, listen, no, I don't have the land. It's 400 shekels. It's no big deal. Just have the land. So, oh, well, you know, my wife, was, she said last night, she said, I mean, if he didn't, if he didn't want any money, just, just don't tell. Why would you mention 400 shekels if you just want to give him the land? It was a, we don't know all the dynamics of these are traditional customs of how you do this sort of thing. But, but we're told he's, Abraham, here's, he hears the price. He says, okay, going to get the 400. He gets, he measures out the 400 shekels. Some people say it's maybe an exorbitant amount of money. We don't know the exact value of the shekel at that particular period of time, whether it fluctuated or not. But, but Abraham just seizes upon that word without delay. He gives Ephron the full price. And it's, it's, we're told here it's a public transaction. There's witnesses. It's all very official. And when everything is said and done, there's no mistaking that Abraham is now the owner. He's not just borrowing a field to bury Sarah. He is the owner of this little property uh, in this land. Look, look again at verse 17 and how Moses who we understand wrote the book of Genesis, right? Look at how he just, frankly, it seems to me that he just belabors this issue. At verse 17, the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in it uh, throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And if we haven't figured it out yet where this land is, where is this cave? Let me tell you again. Verse 20, the field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as a property for a burying place by the Hittites. Thank you, Moses. We get, like, we understand. It seems like, it seems like he has an obsession with you knowing where this particular cave is. Why? How will this help? <laughs> Just take a sip of water. How is this going to help your sanctification this week? He says that, doesn't he? And then he talks about tulip, you know, planting or Georgia football or something. I think this actually can help your sanctification. 
And here's, here, here's why. I mean, listen, uh, there's a lot of detail here. I wish I had some other detail in Gen- these chapters in Genesis. When, when, when Abraham said to Sarah, listen, we're going to tell Pharaoh that you're my sister, okay? I'd like more detail there. What, ha- what, what happened there? What was that like? I want more information about what happened when Abraham heard he's going to take his son up the mountain and sacrifice him. Did Sarah know about that? What, what was, I want to know detail. He gives us this detail. Lots of detail. <laughs> why? And the, I believe there is a reason why. And you'll think of the reason why if you remember that the chapters that you've been studying in Genesis revolve around God keeping his promises to Abraham and Sarah. I mentioned the great name already. He promised them blessing. And we know Abraham was richly blessed. He did have much material good and and wealth. Uh, The promise of offspring. Now, he didn't have offspring at this point, numerous as the stars of the sky. But we saw the miraculous birth of this child, Isaac, and, and what that birth represented in God's plan. One of the promises that God made to Abraham was the promise of land that they would inherit. We see it in chapter 12, verse 7, and then again in chapter 13, verses 14 and 15, and in chapter 15, verse 7, and in chapter 17, verse 8. I'll read you uh, chapter 17, verse 8. I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. That's what God said was going to happen, but now Sarah is dead. Sixty-two years they have wandered as pilgrims waiting for this promise to be fulfilled, and after 62 years they don't own a square inch of land in the land of Canaan. His beloved bride is dead and after all these decades, he's a, he's a sojourner and a foreigner, not even a place to bury his wife. And it makes me think of the book of Hebrews. You remember what we're told in the book of Hebrews chapter 11? These all died in faith. And he's mentioned several saints already at that point, Abel and Enoch and, and Noah, but the most recent, the, the closest name attached to that statement, these all died in faith, is Sarah. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged, look at your Bible at Genesis chapter 23, verse 4, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. These all died in faith. But even death did not hinder Abraham from walking by faith in God's promise. And so he goes in and he mourns for his wife and he weeps over her. But then he gets up from his mourning and he buys a property. He doesn't just borrow a property. He goes through the negotiations and he buys a property. And Moses wants us to know all about it. Why? Because he wants us to see, I think, I think Moses wants us to see this about Abraham, that even though he was sorrowful over the death of his wife, Abraham still believed that even death could not stop God from keeping his promises to his people. Do you see it? The purchase of this little piece of a burial ground near Mamre is a giant act of faith in the promise of God and the God of the promise. 
Pastor Voucher uh, was here last uh, Wednesday preaching from Genesis 22, and he made this statement talking about uh, Abraham going up the mountain with Isaac. And I, he said this, and I thought he just preached my he just preached my message. He didn't realize it. He said last uh, last Wednesday, Abraham's faith was placed in the God who is greater than the grave. Because he went up that mountain and he was prepared to sacrifice his son Isaac saying, if, if, if this is how it's going to go, I guess God will raise him up. Now it's not a possibility. Now it's an actuality. His wife is dead. And he says, I believe there's a resurrection coming. And so in faith, he, he buries Sarah in that cave. And in time, we know actually that Abraham himself would be laid to rest in that cave. We're told that in Genesis 25, 9. And we're also told later in Genesis that Abraham's son Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried in this same cave. And so was Abraham's grandson Jacob and his wife Leah. They were all buried in this cave. If you go to Gen, I'm not going to read it now in the interest of time, but if you go to Genesis chapter 49 in verses 29 and following, you'll see these Jacob's, his dying words are, do not bury me here in Egypt. Take me back. And he gives very specific instruction. Take me to the cave at Machpelah that my grandfather Abraham bought from Ephron the Hittite. Take me back there. Bury me there. For years, for decades, even for centuries, this cave, with the deed written over in Abraham's name, cried out that even death would not finally be an obstacle to their possessing uh, the promised land, the land that he had promised. They believed the, the, the bones in that tomb were their last testimony that there would be a coming resurrection that would vindicate their faith in God's promises. And they saw that day and they greeted that day from afar, the writer of Hebrews tells us. But we know that today in Jesus, the day of resurrection glory has dawned. And we still, we still see it and we greet it from afar, but we've taken a big step closer to it, like a time splitting in half step closer, BC and AD, around the coming of a son of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ, who got up from the dead to show that all of God's promises are sure in him. Not just for the offspring, not just for the physical descendants of Abraham, but for all those who would enter into God's covenant promises through faith in Christ. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, he says, remember that you were at that time. He's talking to the Gentiles. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Oh, he says in chapter three, it's a mystery. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, through the good news of Jesus, that in Christ, God's one and only son came from heaven to earth, and he himself was a man of sorrows. 
He was a man acquainted with grief, and he didn't just come to taste our sorrows. He came to bear our griefs, Isaiah says. He had carried our sorrows because it was the Lord who laid upon Jesus the iniquity of us all. Oh, that this here is an offer for everyone today that on the cross, Jesus Christ shed his blood. You can be brought near to all the promises of God by coming to Jesus because Jesus shed his blood. And on the cross, Jesus gave his life as an atoning sacrifice so that any hell-deserving sinner could come to him and he bore in his own body the curse of God that our rebellion against him had so justly merited. And he came and he himself became a curse for us so that in Christ the blessing of Abraham might come even to the Gentiles by faith. And of this he has given assurance by raising Jesus up from the dead. Because like Sarah, being buried in that cave, Jesus himself was buried in a cold, dark cave only to walk out on the third day in resurrection glory, demonstrating that he had conquered sin and death and hell for all who call on him in faith. In Genesis a tomb filled with bones testified to the faithfulness of God and was a down payment of the full inheritance of land that was to come. But in the gospel, an empty tomb testifies to the faithfulness of God and is the down payments and first fruits that he will bring us with him from the grave, raising us up to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you an inheritance far greater than that little strip of land in the Middle East that people have been quarreling about about for 2,000 years. Even the patriarchs themselves understood that the promised land was only a, a type. It was only a foretaste of a coming heavenly land, Hebrews 11, 15. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. It's that city that is the inheritance of the people of God. That city that we see at the end of the Bible coming down from heaven like a bride adorned for her husband, a world totally purged of all the effects of sin, where what is good and right and true is all that we know a world of perfect peace and justice where nothing puts us to shame or confounds us to all eternity. A world, God gives us so many images to help us try to get our, he says what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. And then he fills his word with images to help us get our imagination around it and says, you can't even imagine it a world where the wolf and the lamb lie down together, where the mountains drip with sweet wine, where the trees of the forest clap their hands and sing for joy, 
A world where there's no more sorrow or pain or sickness or mourning or death. A world where we will forever bask in the sunshine of his smiling face with no distractions, with no dull defections, always enjoying his glory with ever-increasing intensity of delight forever and ever and ever. You know, I wake up in the morning and I, 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 I get in the word I try to sing, I get that same hymnal out, and I, I, sing, I whisper sing. I love to sing. I like to sing loud, but not, when it, not, not early in the morning when all my whole family is asleep. And I'm whisper singing. And you know what happens is that I, 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 inevitably, almost every morning, I'm trying to get my heart joyful in the Lord, and I'm singing a song, and I yawn while I'm singing praise to God. And there's a day coming. When our, we will, our body, our lowly bodies will be transformed to be like his glorious body. And we'll sing, and our affections will never grow dull, and we'll never yawn. And the dwelling place of God, Revelation 21 3, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. If you are in Christ here this morning, this, I knew that was going to happen once. I'm not used to preaching in the evening. If you are in Christ this evening, then with Abraham, you are an heir, not just of this little strip of land in the Middle East, you're an heir of the world. You're going to get to that real soon in Romans chapter 4. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. All things are yours, the Apostle Paul said, to clear up a dispute about favorite teachers in Corinth. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All things are yours, for you are Christ's and Christ is God's. I'm not sure that I've explained it as clearly as I would have liked to, but that's the message of Genesis 23 for us today. Supercharged as it is by the triumph of Jesus over the grave, that even death cannot stop God from keeping his promises to his people. Abraham's bold faith was a witness to it, and Jesus' resurrected body is our guarantee of it. Even death cannot stop God from keeping his promises to his people few points of application briefly before we close. First, is this hope, this unstoppable hope, even by death, is it truly yours tonight? Uh, Matthew Henry is known for saying it ought to be the business of every day to prepare for our last day. And I want, I, I want you to think, are you ready for that day? Have you, through faith in Christ, have you received this hope as your hope? If you're here this evening and you have not trusted in the Lord Jesus, is this world, is this life all that you're living for? I mean, maybe you think that's actually, it's actually going well for you. Maybe you've had a lot of thrills, a lot of success, a lot of popularity, a lot of wealth. It seems like things are really good. But I hope this trip 
to the house of mourning helps you to see that even the fullest earthly life is, is little more than a skydiver enjoying the thrill of his downward journey, free fall popularity, free fall success, free fall wealth, but he doesn't realize that his parachute is broken and he's about 20 seconds from dying a gruesome, horrible death. That's what the pleasures of life in this world are without hope beyond the grave. And so if you're here this morning and your hope is still in this world, oh, I pray for you that the dreadfulness of death would do its work, that you would not just ignore that, that you'd not just suppress that, that you'd not numb it, but that you would look to Jesus, that you would recognize that your clutching for a hope in this world is a great offense against God and that you have merited his damnation, his eternal punishment, because of your looking away from him as the source and fountain of all good. And yet God in love is so merciful and good that he sent his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life that you failed to live, to give his life on a cross, suffering for the pun- this punishment that you deserve for your sins, and God raised him up on the third day so that you would know he is victorious over sin and death and hell, that you might repent of your sin and put your faith in him today. If you have any uncertainty about whether you've done that, please speak to myself, speak to Pastor Ed, speak to someone who, who's around you so that you would have clarity on that issue tonight. Second application. May this trip to the house of mourning teach you to treasure and make the most of the brief life on earth that you have with the people that you love most. Because as sweet as our most precious bonds on earth are, and as long as we've enjoyed them together, there will be a parting. I mean, we long for Jesus to come. Maybe there won't be a parting, but if, if Jesus doesn't come back, there will be a parting. And it won't be long before you're kneeling before a dead loved one. And none of us know when that is. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. So let let the hugs tonight be extra sweet. Maybe that would just dispel some marital conflict in the room right now. You think about that day. And maybe there's hope for you to persevere through your conflicts. Uh, third application, I'm running out of time, but I, want, but I put it in, I'm, I'm putting it back in for Mike Chang. Um, may this trip to the house of mourning teach you to hold the things of this world loosely. I'm saying it because, because I was just talking to Mike about his transition here from, the, from the, the work world and the medical world that he's in to come and, Lord willing, be a full-time pastor in this church, and he just was talking about how many promotions he's passed down and how people think he's crazy at his work because of it. And listen, not everybody's called a vocational ministry, but, but if we're going to be heirs of the world, if the whole cosmos is our inheritance, we can do without in this life with some things. Hold loosely to the things of this world. And if you don't feel like you've attained to much in this life, and you're not particularly noteworthy or famous or special. You don't think that you've gotten what this world has. Sinking sand. I mean, it is sinking sand. Who cares what things of this world you have when you're an heir to the throne of the universe? A final application. When do the kids come back? Because I want to tell you, told me, 
you told me I should illustrate. I got a wonderful illustration of this last application point. But you, and he's so young, I'm younger than you, and I, he said illustrate. <sighs> last, last application point. May this, may this trip to the house of mourning teach you to hold your trials, to have a proper perspective for your trials. Genesis 23 teaches us that many of God's promises to you will go unfulfilled as you draw your last breath in this world. Like Abraham and Sarah, we're living in the gap between what God has promised and what we're actually experiencing. The New Testament is, we're exiles, trudging through, journeying through this strange land, longing for that heavenly country. You too, unless he comes back, and Maranatha, let it be so, let him come quickly. But unless he comes back quickly, you also will need to die in faith. And we feel that, we know that. Every time you gather, Wednesday night, Sunday morning, whenever, it's real in the room, right? Debilitating physical pain persists, and wombs stay barren, and diseases stay fatal, and wayward children don't return, and churches struggle and close down, and marriages do not heal, and heartaches abide until death. It's exhausting because it feels unending and unrelenting, but it makes all the difference to know and remember that there's an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison that is being prepared through, not just in spite of the light momentary afflictions, but through the afflictions, there's glory being prepared. And so... A year ago today, my son and I were at a golf tournament. We like golf. I know that's, you might think that's lame, but if you are a Mets fan, you have no reason to judge me. (laughs) I just said that after the 40-minute mark. My son and I like golf. His favorite golfer is a guy named Tony Finau. There was a tournament last year in Delaware. We went to the practice round. My boy just wanted to get Tony Finau's autograph. We went on the practice day because they're more chill and laid back and you can get that kind of thing. And we're in the, the kids' autograph zone. There's maybe 75 kids and he's gotten lots of autographs. Some of the famous, most famous golfers in the world, he's gotten their autographs, but he wants Tony Finau's autograph. And Tony Finau finally comes out and he's, he's on the putting green and he's working on stuff. And then he comes over to the, to the, the, the kids and my son, and I got a picture of this. He's up there with this, he's got this bag that he wants, and he's, he's you've, you've been to a baseball game. You've seen the way that people crowd around these athletes for an autograph. And I got a picture, he's right up there, and he's, he's right there by my son's bag, and he, and, he, and he doesn't get my son's bag, and he says, I'm sorry, I've got to go start my practice round, and he walks away. And my son turns to me, and he collapses into my chest. He's going to listen to this, that's why. He's distraught. I'm, I'm, I'm like, it's not, his fault. it's not this guy's fault. This guy, I'm, I'm like enraged. I'm, I just like, oh, I wish we had never come. Can't believe this just happened to him. He's waiting all day for this one. And this boy, maybe 13, 14, sees him, sees my boy. And he says, he's really a very nice golfer. And if you just follow him for a few holes, I bet you could get his attention. I bet he'll come over and sign your back. And he's like, I don't even want to do it. I don't want to do it. And I'm like, we're, we're doing this. We are doing this. And I, and I, and I said, so, we, got, so we, we walked. And 
we're waiting there at the at the the tenth hole, and he's and he's and it's and there's no kids there. They were all at the autograph zone. And he sees my son, this golfer Tony Finau, and I got this picture too. He comes over to my son and he says, "Hey, bud, do you want me to sign that bag?" And he's having a conversation with my son. He's not just one kid amongst a hundred that he's going like this for. He's looking at my son. He gives him a fist bump. You want me to sign that bag? Yeah. He signs the bag. He poses with my son. A glory that we could not, okay, compared to what we're dwelling with, I understand, but do you see what I mean? (laughs) Do you understand what I'm saying? Heartache to thrill. And the two timestamps on the pictures, it's 15 minutes apart. And the joy was greater. The picture and getting to see him and actually talk with him was better than we could have imagined. But if we had just gotten the signature, if we hadn't gone through that pain, we would have never gotten the good thing that we were wanting. I hope you can make the connections in your hardships. I know an autograph of a golfer is not a big thing in terms of the weight of suffering that's present in this room right now. But from it, learn. Weeping is for a night. But joy does come in the morning. Even if that night, beloved, lasts 62 years of groaning like an exile, it will seem like one bad dream in the eternal morning of the new heavens and the new earth. The resurrected Lord Jesus will see to that. So, beloved, in a world in which we sojourn through many dangers and toils and snares, let us grieve. That is appropriate. But let us also encourage one another every day as long as it is called today. And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. It's been a sincere honor to bring the word to you. May he bless it and make you a a doer of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the great hope that we have in Jesus. We pray that you would fill our hearts tonight with joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we would abound in hope. May we not lose heart as we groan our way to glory, but would you keep us joyful, steady, persevering, looking to that imperishable, unfading, and undefiled inheritance that you will bring in just a little while. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.